it is with great joy that um, I tell you that we have reached the end of our First John series tonight. Um, it's not like I'm tired of First John, but it's, you know, it's, it's nice to finish something. Um, it's nice to finish something. And so I'm uh, really grateful to, uh, to finish First John with you all tonight. Uh, next week, we're, like Alex said, we're going to be working on something um, and, uh, to, and to welcome in our uh, incoming college freshmen. Uh, and uh, we also uh, don't want to ignore the accomplishments of our own college graduates and our grad school grad graduates as well. So um, we might be planning something a little lighter next week, but um, yeah, please still join in. Uh, just have some fellowship time just, and uh, just really enjoy our, our, our fellowship with, with one another. Uh, not every week has to be a, a in-depth uh, preaching week. So um, especially now with shelter in place. So please join us for next week. Um, and I'm sure we'll have some other announcements later as well. So um, yes, please join us to show love to uh, our incoming freshmen, our college and grad school graduates. All right. Well, um, before we get into that tonight's study, let's turn to First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 13 to 21. We're uh, and um, and uh, I'll, I will read that for us, and then we will pray. Okay, so 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 to 21. The Apostle John writes this, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself miles. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word and for how it instructs us in all manners of life and godliness. And we're grateful for uh, this book of First John, for how it has given us so many uh, different assurances of our salvation. And we are grateful also for what we just read, how it reminds us of the importance of prayer in our lives. We pray that, Father, as we look at your word, as we study it, and as we meditate upon it, that you would help us all strive to grow to be the men and women that you want us to be, the men and women who will carry your gospel to the ends of the earth, even if it's just starting from our own city. So we pray, Father, that you would help us strive to glorify you in everything. Be pleased as we meditate on your word tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, we, we know that prayer is an important part of the Christian life, but prayer is often a neglected spiritual discipline. Outside of uh, praying for our food, possibly praying before we go to sleep and praying during Fridays and, and Sunday services, it can be difficult for some of us to devote time to prayer, even though we know that we're commanded to pray. Usually, whenever things get busy, prayer is almost the first thing out the window. And, you know, reasons for this neglect, it varies from person to person. For some of us, we intend to pray, but we end up being so busy and so distracted that by the time that we remember to pray, it's too late to pray. We got to go to bed. We have to get ready for the next workday. Uh, or we're too tired, so if we try to pray, we'll fall asleep. So we'll try again the next day. Uh, for others, we know that prayer is good for us, but when we try praying, we're easily distracted. We close our eyes and we begin to pray, and then, oh, 
wait, I've got this project due tomorrow, or, oh, I've got this work deadline that I've got to take care of, or, uh, oh, I wonder what's going on uh, with this person over here, or that person over there. And we just end up losing focus. We end up losing track of, of what we needed to pray for. And then because we're so distracted, we, we give up. And still yet others are discouraged from prayer because when, when they have prayed in the past, it just doesn't seem like it does anything. Right? It doesn't seem like prayer really worked. Um, you know, these brothers and sisters, they might not be opposed to the idea of prayer in general, but they might feel like prayer just might not be for them. God doesn't seem to listen to them. There are, of course, other reasons why uh, people either do not pray or struggle mightily with prayer, but our goal tonight is not to explore all the different reasons why people do not pray. Instead, what we want to look at is the wonderful privilege we have in Christ to pray due to the salvation given to us. And so this evening, we're going to look at three reasons why Christians can and should be praying people. Three reasons why Christians can and should be praying people. The first reason that Christians can and should be praying people is that God hears our prayers. God hears our prayers. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So similar to how John ends the Gospel of John, John signals the conclusion of his letter with a purpose statement. That might seem a little weird because you would think that most purpose statements would go in the beginning of the letter or the beginning of the account. Right, when we were taught to write essays, we were taught to put our thesis statement in the, at the end of our introductory uh, paragraph. Uh, if you have done academic writing uh, in any uh, sense, uh, especially um, past, uh, past college, you know that it's probably the most dry, most boring form of writing because you basically tell everyone what you're going to write about, and then you write about it. Uh, right? So normally we would expect for the purpose statement to be at the beginning, but John puts it here at the end. So that's kind of strange. But it's not as if John has not been signaling what his purpose was throughout the book. Uh, particularly in the beginning, uh, in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, John makes it clear that his purpose in writing is to proclaim to his readers the certainty of the gospel so that they might have eternal life and fellowship with John and with those who are with him. Now, coming back to chapter 5, you know, uh, verse 13, this is not a separate purpose statement from that first purpose statement, but it's a restatement of the purpose statement. It is the reiteration of the purpose statement, much like how sermon conclusions often revisit the sermon's proposition and outline points. So the words, these things, it looks back to everything that John had previously written in this epistle to his readers. And it's to repeat to them the fundamental truths of the gospel. It's a rebuttal, of course, to the false teachers, but it's also an assurance to believers that they know for sure that they have eternal life. And because John's intention throughout this letter is to provide assurance of salvation, he is not writing to those who are interested in Christianity and are not Christians. He's writing to those who claim to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, or at least people who say they're believers. And so all throughout the book of 1 John, what we've seen is uh, we've seen tests, tests that John has given to, to, for, for us to ask ourselves to determine whether we're saved or not. And these tests, they're all hard-hitting. They're all self-reflecting. And they're, to be quite honest, pretty invasive questions. Right? We don't ask questions like that normally. Maybe we should get in the practice of asking more invasive questions uh, as we love on one another, at least, you know, uh, acceptably invasive questions. But um, right, these, in, these, these questions are, are meant to cause the readers to examine themselves. Do I believe the right doctrine regarding Jesus Christ? Do I act in a manner that is consistent with repentance? Do I strive to obey God? Do I love my fellow and my fellow brother or sister in Jesus Christ? 
John recognized, just like we do today, that it's really easy to simply say that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're saying the words themselves, it's super easy. Anyone can say it. But if you truly believe in the name of the Son of God, the saving name of the Son of God, if you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died and rose again three days later so that by believing upon his name, you will be forgiven of sins and you can affirm everything that John says marks a true believer, then you can be assured of your salvation. Your life, though not perfect, has been redeemed by Christ. However, if you realize that there is a severe deficiency in your life in these areas, this may be a serious indication that you've not been redeemed by Christ, that you've not repented of your sins. And that doesn't mean that all hope is lost, that you should be discouraged and that you have no hope of salvation. Rather, this, these indications should drive you to examine yourself, to see whether you're in the faith. If you are, it should drive you to pursue greater righteousness. And if you realize that you're not, it should drive you to repentance. In either case, it should eventually lead to salvation. It should eventually lead to your salvation and assurance of that if you have doubts. As those who have been assured of our salvation by these tests or driven to repentance by these tests, John explains that our assurance of faith gives us a particular kind of confidence. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the confidence of our salvation is one that we can have before Christ. Now notice John's intentional use of the preposition before. He could have used the word in, right? Uh, this is the confidence that you have in Christ. But he's not talking about a confidence that is rooted and anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. He is, however, choosing to talk about the word before Christ to indicate the privilege, the, the, the confidence of coming into the presence of Christ coming into the presence of Christ. So when you appear before Jesus Christ, you can have confidence as you stand in his presence. And um, and, and this particular appearance before Christ, uh, being in his presence, is a, an appearance that comes through prayer. Now, hypothetically, if you had the chance to meet one of your heroes in person for a meet and greet, wouldn't you feel a sense of nervousness and a sense of disbelief, you have a chance to meet someone you look up to. Right? Why? Why? Where, where does that nervousness and disbelief come from? It comes from a recognition of the greatness or importance of the other person in comparison to yourself. And if we can be impressed and intimidated by celebrities, how much more should we feel that sense of nervousness before Christ? Or he's greater than your favorite K-pop star, your favorite athlete, uh, your favorite pastor, or whoever it might be, right? He, Christ is greater than any of these people. We should be more nervous. But what John tells us here is that, no, you don't have to be nervous. You have confidence. You can walk straight up to Jesus as a friend, as a fellow heir, in the promises of God. You have that assurance because of what he has done on the cross. And as you can see, this particular confidence is a, a confidence uh, of, of prayer. It's not that you won't be rejected by Christ, but it's that he'll hear us when we draw near to him in prayer. And, and it, he says, uh, John says here, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. And of course, when we talk about if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is not a blanket promise. Okay, brothers and sisters, this is not a blanket promise that as long as you add the words, if it is your will to a prayer that you're going to receive whatever you ask for. Okay, you can't be like, Jesus, if it's your will, give me an Xbox or give me a PS5. And it's going to be automatically assumed that he's going to give you whatever you want. 
right? That's, it's not the magic formula for, to, uh, to, to get God to do what you want him to do for you. Instead, what we see is that this is a guardrail. It's a guideline that helps us understand how we are to approach God in confidence, how we are to ask him for things. Yes, we have a boldness to appear before the king of kings, yet we still humbly recognize that when we ask him to ask, answer our prayers, uh, when, when we ask him to intervene in our lives or the lives of our friends and our families, we're not asking him to intervene like Aladdin asked Genie to intervene. It's different. We ask him with humility. We ask him with dependence because we recognize that he is God. We ask him in faith, knowing that if our request is in accordance with his will, he will hear us. Now, you know, understanding what God's will is, that's a, that is another sermon. And uh, I believe we have a sermon on that in our archive. So if you want to revisit that, I encourage you to do so. Um, but we have to remember that everything uh, that we do in our lives, it is subject to the will of God. It's subject to the will of God. And, and this confidence that we have that he hears us, or he doesn't just hear our prayer requests and say, oh, that's nice. And then he just moves on. Or he doesn't do that to us. He actually listens and he actually answers. He actually listens and he actually answers. Now, the motive that ought to drive our prayers before God is for his will to be done in our lives or in the lives of others, not so that we can get whatever we want. James makes a similar statement to that in James 4.3, when he tells his readers that the reason why they ask of God and do not receive is because they ask with wrong motives so that they can spend on their own pleasures. This doesn't mean that all of our prayers we may ask of God are selfish. There are certain prayers that are good and right to ask of God. It is. It is good and acceptable to ask God to help you to study hard for your school exams or grad school exams or even uh, your professional exams. It's okay for you to ask God for help for that because we're recognizing that he is the one who granted us our intellect. We're recognizing that we depend on him even to do those things well. It is absolutely acceptable, acceptable for you to ask God to provide you with a job if you don't have one, or if your current job is really taking a toll on you. God wants for you to be provided for. He wants for you to be cared for. You might not get the job that you want, but it's not wrong for you to ask the Lord for help for a job. It is also for those of you who are thinking about this, good for you to, to ask God to provide you with a spouse. It's a good thing to pray to God for that. Um, you know, even if, even if you're not remotely interested in dating right now, it's not too early to start praying for your spouse, right? That the Lord would, uh, would watch over them, that he would grow them more in love for Christ, that he would protect them for their purity. Those are good things. Those are great things to be asking of the Lord. But where it could become, become sinful is when our motives are wrong. When we're not asking with a spirit of faith, trust, and submission. It could be idolatrous. When we are desperately asking God for these things because we believe that when we finally get these things that we've been praying for, we'll be happy. We'll be content life will be great. It can be idolatrous, as Piper says, when we value the gifts more than we value the giver. Doing well in school, getting a job, getting married, these are objectively good things that God provides. We're reminded in Psalm 84 that no good thing does God withhold from his people. But if we love and long for the good things of God more than we long for God himself. That is idolatry. And God may not answer our prayers in ways that we want. He'll still hear our prayers, but he's not necessarily obligated to answer them in an affirmative way. And because of the assurance of salvation that we have in Christ, we know that not only does he hear our prayers if we ask anything according to his will. He tells us in verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests 
which we have asked from him. So that word if, it reminds us that this is a conditional, um, this is a conditional promise. If we ask according to the will of God, then he will hear our prayers and he will answer. But if we do not ask according to the will of God, well, he'll still hear our, our request. It's not like he just goes deaf if you don't say the magic words, but it will almost be as if it falls upon deaf ears. Right? He's just kind of like, okay, but you're not asking according to my will, so I'm not answering that one. And this word no, right? Um, this word no, and, and if we know that he hears us, that word no, it's not a knowledge that's driven by experience, but it's knowledge that is informed by faith. A knowledge that is informed by faith. You know that God will answer your prayers because of what you have seen through the scriptures, because of what you have seen in the past. It is a, a knowledge driven by faith. We know that God has kept his promises in the past. We've seen in the Old Testament how he's made promises of the Messiah's coming, and we've seen the Messiah come. We know how he has answered other prayers as well. So we know through faith that God will answer our prayers. And that's, that's such a wonderful assurance. Right? That's such a wonderful assurance that when we are praying according to God's will, not only will he hear us, but he will answer us right away. That the present tense of we have, uh, we have the requests uh, we have asked of him. Right? That indicates that the requests that we bring before God are answered right away. Right? We presently have our answer. Now, we might not see the results until later, but we presently have our answer. And this is another reminder that our God truly works in ways that are not our ways. Remember, we are bound by time. Right? We are bound by the sequential nature of moments after moments. God is not bound by time, right? He exists outside of time. He, he uh, operates on an eternal plane. He can see everything all at once. If, if you want to think about it from a, a nerdy comic book uh, person's uh, mindset, God operates outside of the timeline, right? If you, if you think about the timeline as something that's linear on, on the paper, God is like us ab above the paper seeing all of it all at once. He operates outside of the timeline or outside of time. He's not bound by time as we are. He works outside of this fr framework of time to accomplish his plans, which is why he is able to know and see the end before we get there. We can see this, at least uh, the, the, the failed part of it from a human perspective. For instance, if you ask me, Pastor Roger, can we go to Disneyland as a group trip? As a group joint heirs trip, can we go to Disneyland together? I can answer you absolutely yes, but I am not in control of those details. I can give you the answer right now. You can have that promise. However, I have no ability to, to deliver. I have no ability to deliver, right? Because let, let's say that we planned on going to Disneyland in March. Well, March was when the, when the pandemic hit us and everything shut down. I have no power to make good on my promises. That's not the case with God. That's not the case with God. He gives us an answer presently, and he is always able to follow through with his answer in the future because he is the one who intervenes. He is the one who uses all the circumstances of our lives in order to bring us to his will, in order to bring about the, the realization of his promises. That is the greatness of our God, that all of our circumstances, even the sucky ones, can be used to accomplish God's will. Brothers and sisters, I know that it can be difficult at times to pray because we don't often see God's answers to our prayers immediately. And even if we don't see um, our, answer, our prayers answered immediately, sometimes we kind of forget that he answers our prayers because the way that he answers them are so small. So I understand it's hard to trust in him when it comes to prayer. But I encourage you, hold on. Hold fast to the one who is sovereignly in control of all of your circumstances. He doesn't ask you to have strength to face another tomorrow today. 
He gives you strength and mercy new every morning. So hurting brothers and sisters, know that your heavenly father, he actually sees you and he actually hears you. He knows what you're going through. He encourages you to call out to him like the psalmist often did. And even our Lord Jesus showed us that it's not wrong for us to call upon the Lord with desperation as he prayed with fervor in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in his desperation, Father, if it is your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. And he prayed that over and over again to the point where blood, he was was sweating blood. But that wasn't the end of his prayer, was it? No, it wasn't. Because he follows that up with, yet not my will, but yours be done. So, brothers and sisters, don't suffer in silence. Don't look at your life circumstances with apathy as if there's nothing that you can do. Don't be despondent, but desperately cling to the Savior and embrace the church family he has given you to help you hold on to him. Pray. Pray to him, knowing that he hears you and he answers you. Now, there is a second reason that Christians can and should be praying people, and that is God desires us to pray for fellow believers. God desires us to pray for fellow believers. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Knowing that our Lord wants us to pray for him, uh, to him and that he answers our prayers, John wants us all to know that we don't just pray for ourselves. We pray for other people as well. And this is ultimately seen in loving prayer for a fellow believer whom we see in sin. Now, as I was reading verse 16, I'm pretty sure all of you noticed that there's some pretty curious phrasing here. There's some pretty curious words here. There, what, what, is, what is this concept of a sin not leading to death and a sin that leads to death? And evidently, John's readers understood what this meant because John doesn't take any time whatsoever to explain what these sins are. Right? We're here scratching our heads like, what is this? Did I commit, did I commit a sin leading to death? Am I going to die? And we don't know. Um, and, you know, honestly, we're not really left with many clues as to what John means by these statements either in the scriptures or even uh, in early church history. We have no, uh, we, we don't really have a lot of clues as to what this means. Now, we know that Christians do genuinely struggle with sin at times. They're not enslaved to sin, but they will struggle. And uh, we also know that we, we've been given a chance to be restored to fellowship with, with God, right? If you sin and if you sin too much, it's not like God's like, uh, well, it's not like he always says, that's enough of you, I'm taking you home. Right? He doesn't always do that. Uh, So what does it mean then that there's a sin that leads to death? Uh, When don't we pray to God so that God may grant life? We don't have a lot of answers for this, but there are a few theories uh, that that have been proposed. There are at least uh, three primary views that have been offered by scholars, and we'll we'll go through them quickly. Um, The first view states that the sin which leads to death is the final rejection of the gospel by an unbeliever the final rejection of the gospel by an unbeliever. In a sense, this makes sense, right? Because um, a sin leading to death would be just the rejection of Jesus Christ. And if you pray for someone who rejects Christ uh, and goes to the grave rejecting Christ, even if you're praying for their salvation, it won't happen. Uh, So that makes sense. This is a possible view. However, John identifies the one who is sinning as a brother. He's identifying this person who is sinning as a brother. And so that casts serious doubt as to whether this view is valid. Because if the person's a brother, how can he be an unbeliever? But this is related to the second major view on this, which is, uh, this is talking about the sin of apostasy. The sin of apostasy. Now, apostasy occurs when someone has expressed saving faith in Jesus Christ but then ultimately denies the faith and rejects the gospel. Now, these people, they will be judged in the day of judgment for their ultimate rejection of Christ. The only catch is we have no idea who they are. 
Because there are some people who grow up in the church hearing the gospel. They think they're saved. They go through all the motions, and then they reject Christ in, uh, later on, whether it's in college or uh, during um, the early years of, of their career, uh, or perhaps after some hardship. And um, what we realize is that they were never saved to begin with. There's actually been a trend of, of, uh, of famous Christian artists who uh, are uh, announcing their deconversions online. Actually, they're not even artists, right? They're pastors too. Um, and so were they saved to begin with? We're not sure. Probably not. And so we pray for their salvation. But if they claim the name of Christ, if they say that they're believers, they reject the gospel, and they reject the gospel all the way up until their death, there is no salvation for them. And that's why John would say, uh, don't pray for their salvation if that's the case. Um, so this is another possible view. Um, there is a third view, which is that the sin which leads to death is a serious sin committed by a believer, which requires that the Lord brings them home. This is more of a rare case, but the prime evidence of this, uh, at least within the scriptures, is uh, in the New Testament, the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? They were stealing glory away from God in the, in the beginning of the church, and he makes an example out of them right? by uh, striking them dead on the spot. Um, or uh, the, there are believers who are abusing communion in 1 Corinthians 11, which is why we always say when we take communion to examine yourself, because if you don't uh, examine yourself and you um, take the communion wrongly, uh, at least back then when, uh, when God was uh, really in the, uh, was really establishing the importance of the church community, people were getting sick. Some of them even died because of their abuse of communion. Um, now, um, I'm not saying that if you accidentally forget to confess a particular sin, the next time we take communion, which would be not this Sunday, but next Sunday, that God might strike you dead in your home. I'm not saying that. Okay. So don't worry about that. Um, but, um, you know, it, what we have seen is that there are instances where a continued pattern of sin, uh, could lead to to death. We recognize that even in our, in our own lives, right? If we're, if, if a genuine believer uh, uh, finds themselves caught up in, in sin, whether it be the sin of drunkenness or um, uh, perhaps you get caught up in drugs or, or other things, right? There could, there can be severe consequences that can lead you to lose your life. So this is also a possible a possible view. Now, uh, views two and three are, are probably our best guesses as to what this sin that leads to death are, but um, instead, uh, or, or but because John does not really make it clear what these sins are, it's best for us not to be really, really firm and say, oh, it has to be view two, or it has to be view three. We're, we'll be a little more, uh, we'll be a little less firm a little less dogmatic when it comes to what this particular sin is. Instead of trying to figure out what, uh, which sins might lead to death, we should recognize that John's main point here is that he wants Christians who see fellow believers in sin to have concern for their sibling in the faith and that we should be praying for them. Right? That's his main thing right here. We ought to be praying that our sinning brother or sister would repent of their sins and be restored to right relationship with God. That is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. And so the fact that John's intention to encourage us to pray for our fellow believers instead of differentiating between sins that do or do not lead to death is seen uh, in verse 17, where he says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Now, there is sin that's not leading to death. However, However, all unrighteousness is sin, which means that eventually you will die as a result of sin. You will die eventually because of sin. Even though you and I have been justified in Christ because of our faith in Christ, we all die. Yes? We all die. And that's a consequence of our sinful bodies that we've inherited from Adam. 
This is not uh, punishment, but it's just a consequence of sin. And that's why that's why death is such a, uh, a grievous thing. It's unnatural. It's a result of sin. Now, um, you know, just because all sin eventually leads to death does not mean that we shouldn't pray for any sins that we see in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Rather, it means that you and I should take sin so, so seriously. Don't take it lightly, but take it very seriously. We should have a loving concern for our brothers and sisters. We should pray for them. And, um, you know, praying for them, brothers and sisters, does not negate the importance of us talking to them, confronting them. Um, I mean, you, you can pray for another brother or sister who's stuck in their sins all you want, but if you don't talk to them about it, they might not even see that they're in sin. They might not even think that they're in sin. So there is an, there is importance to the practice of confrontation. But like we've said in the past, right, confrontation should always be thought of as confrontation restoration. It's never just confrontation for confrontation's sake. But we confront out of love so that we can restore a fallen brother or sister to the Lord. It's always with that purpose. It's not for us to have an agenda or to kick someone out of our life because they're troublesome. It's because we love them. Right? So we obey Matthew 18 because that's important, because we ought to love our brothers and sisters. However, before we confront, we also have to apply Matthew 7 to ourselves. Have you checked yourself? Have you checked your own motives? Have you checked your heart before you confront our fellow heir in Christ? We have a duty to one another, a familial duty to care for one another's spiritual well-being. Yes, we do pray that our sinning brother or sister will recognize their own sin on their own and repent. But sometimes God's means of grace for us to repent of our sins is the other brothers and sisters who who come into our lives and say, hey, I'm not sure, but I'm seeing this in your life. What's going on? Are you okay? God uses people in our lives to help us see the extent of our sin, to help us see our blind spots. And so our prayers are at times the things that soften hearts even before we get there so that when we lovingly confront our brothers and sisters will be ready to repent and return to the Lord. God more often than not does not, uh, or more often than not doesn't just magically zap our sinning brother or sister and help them realize, Oh wow, I'm, I'm such a sinner. I need to repent. He often uses our prayer in addition to loving confrontation to help them repent of their sins and be restored. So it is out of a profound love and care for our fellow believer that we pray for them and desire to speak with them about what might be sin in their lives. And if we need help determining whether what we see is sin um, or if it's just a preference issue, we should, uh, we, we can talk generally about that situation with uh, one or two mature believers do so without names uh, and, and speak very generally about it so that we can avoid gossip. Right? Our goal is not to impose our preferences upon others. It's not to drag other people through the mud just to validate the fact that th- we, we see them in sin. Right? Our goal is to help everyone walk closely with God. So God, he wants us to be praying for one another. He wants us to um, to pray to him because we know that he listens to us and he answers us. So we are to be a praying people for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. We depend on the Lord for everything. And that should push us to want more and more of God to get closer and closer to him. And that leads us to a third reason why we should be praying, uh, praying people. And that's God keeps those who are born of God. God keeps those born of God. This leads us to be thankful. Okay, so that's where I'm going with this. Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. John's not saying, as you know, that genuine Christians do not sin at all. He's not teaching that uh, once you've been saved, that you possess sinless perfection in the here and now. 
He is, however, making note of the fact that those who are genuinely uh, saved are not involuntarily enslaved to their sins. We're not like the world in that way. Those who are saved do not make it their practice to continue sinning as if they have not been freed from their sins. We might struggle with our sins on a day-to-day basis, uh, impatience, uh, anger, bitterness. We might struggle with these things, uh, but we ought to be repenting of them. We should not be living in continual unrepentant sin. We should always be repenting of our sin. And when we pray to God for forgiveness and for strength to fight sin, we know because living righteously is a prayer according to God's will, that he will answer it and he will provide us with the strength to flee. He will provide us with the strength to fight sin. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how many times I've talked to people who've been stuck in their sins and I've asked them, so what have you been doing about it? What have you been doing about it? And they say, well, I've been praying. I've been praying to God about it. And that's, that's good. That's good. But the problem is, if you're only just praying about it and you're expecting God to just magically come in and zap you and make it so that you're not an angry person, so you're not an impatient person, so that you're not a bitter person, not a lustful person, that's not how God works. He doesn't just magically sanctify you and it's like, boom, good. I don't ever have to deal with that sin ever again. He works in conjunction with us to beat sin, to defeat sin in our lives. It's not Jesus take the wheel. It's Lord, help me. And so if you're praying to God to help you, battle your sin. That's good. That's great. But you also have to think about, okay, how do I, with the strength that God gives me, with the, with the truths that God gives me in his word, attack my sin biblically? How can I begin to grow and change as a result of the word of God? Do you believe that Christ came to deliver you from your sins? Do you believe that the grace given to you allows you to no longer live in your sins? Do you believe that God is the one who enables you to endure the temptations which are common to man? You're not alone. It's common to man. And will also, with that temptation, give you a way out. If you say yes to all of these things, then we must live like it. Don't just pray, but act actively turn away from sin and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God's will is for your sanctification. He wants us to be like Jesus and he will make a way for us to be like him. So let's grasp onto that promise and let's pursue the righteousness that he has for us. Now, we also see in verse 18 that there is a wonderful promise here as well. Jesus, who is also born of God, he keeps us. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the Son of God, is the very one who holds us and keeps us. He protects us from the evil one. Now, that doesn't mean that we will never be affected by the schemes of the devil, nor does it mean that we will never face calamity in our lives. Jesus protecting us from the devil, from the evil one, means that he will not allow for us to be reclaimed by Satan. Paul affirms this in Romans 8, 35, 39 with these wonderful words, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You'll notice that Paul does not say that as a result of our faith, we're going to be protected from everything. He doesn't say that that, that nothing bad will ever happen to us ever. Every year, Christians suffer the effects of natural disasters, political persecution, and other trials. 
Some of them even lose their lives because of these difficulties. But that does not mean that Satan won. It doesn't mean that Satan was able to lay a hand on them. Or Jesus won. He won at the cross. And so when he brings his saints home through calamity, they receive rest and reward as they're with him. And when he brings saints through times of calamity and they don't die, the result of those who have their eyes fixed upon Jesus is a greater faith because they know from experience that he has kept them. So not only do they know from faith, but they know from personal experience that he has kept them. At no point does Jesus ever lose anyone whom God gives to him. In John 10, 28, 29, Jesus, the good shepherd, says that he gives eternal life to his sheep and no one will be able to snatch his sheep out of his hands, nor will they be able to snatch the sheep out of the Father's hands. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? Christ holds those of us who are his securely in his hands. No one will take us from him. Is that not a great reason to pray? Even if, even if we may not have everything that we want in this life, we have Christ who loves us and secures us for God. When we say, all I have is Christ, or Christ is enough for me, right? when we sing those lyrics, it's so true. All we need is Christ. All we need is Christ. Now, as a result, John comforts his readers in verses 19 to uh, 19 through 20. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Because God is our Father, because he himself is the one who has made a way for us to be saved from our sins through Jesus Christ, we know that we are no longer in the grip of Satan. He doesn't influence our lives, that uh, Satan doesn't, um, as he does with unbelievers, deceiving them all the way to eternal wrath. We are no longer under his power. Instead, we are declared righteous because of the work of Christ done on our behalf. Because we know that Christ has indeed come to grant those of us who believe eternal life, sin has lost its grip on us. Through Christ and in Christ, we, we've been given access to the Holy Spirit who has not only made us spiritually alive, he has made us one with Christ. And so because Jesus truly is the way, truth, and life, we all know that our faith in him is not deficient. We don't need to look for answers outside of what God has already provided us in his word. We don't need to worry that we've missed a crucial piece of information about the gospel. It is simple, but it is complete. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So look to him. Look to his word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's not just theoretically good. He is actually good. Right? Knowing this, John addresses his readers, his precious readers, whom he loves so much. And he says in verse 21, in light of this truth, in light of knowing who God is and, and knowing his love, guard yourself from idols. John knows that the false teachers that his readers encountered would not be the last false teachers on, uh, to walk on the earth. He knows that there are going to be people out there who are going to make it their mission in life to disrupt the faith of those who place their faith in God in an attempt to lure people after them. And as a result, he says, remember the true God. Remember what you've been taught in scriptures. Don't fall for idols. Guard yourself from idols. False teachers and false gospels exist today. And they are not always the smiling rich people posing as pastors who are after your money with promises of health, wealth, and blessing. They can also come in the form of people who claim that the Jesus that they worship wouldn't believe X, Y, Z. And when they say, my Jesus wouldn't believe that, but it's in complete, contra uh, in complete contradiction to what the scriptures clearly teach, that's a false gospel. That's a false Jesus. That's an idol, uh, idolatrous Jesus. 
right? And they, a false gospel, a false teachers come also in the form of those who cast doubt on the truthfulness and sufficiency of the scriptures. They can even come in the form of telling you how to get the most out of life. At least the most out of life outside of the means given by God. So remember, brothers and sisters, that idols are not just graven images made in a factory or by hand. They are anything or anyone we worship instead of the true God. And ultimately, if you remember John Calvin, the idol factories are our own hearts. The idol factories are our own hearts. So be on the alert, brothers and sisters. Guard your hearts and go to the scriptures so that you will not be deceived, so that you will not be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. So pray. Pray not just in thankfulness, but pray that he would continue to keep us and teach us his word so that we will not fall for false teaching. Prayer truly is the lifeblood of Christians. And it may be difficult at times, but it is not meaningless. It is not powerless. It brings us into the very presence of God, even while we're here on earth. Prayer is what anchors our hope in Christ. Prayer is what helps us understand how we as Christians can respond to the circumstances God allows into our lives. And so with this evening's message, we are reminded afresh why prayer is such a necessary part of our lives. Let us have a renewed commitment to prayer, both individually and corporately. Now, you don't have to join prayer ministry on Monday night. You don't have to join uh, the pastors on uh, Wednesday morning, but seek out opportunities to pray with others. These are th those two opportunities, prayers on Monday and, and prayer on Wednesday. Those are just a few opportunities that you have to pray. You can, you can buddy up with your friends and have a Zoom call or a Google Meet call or whatever you want, and you can pray together. It doesn't have to be um, in, in, through these other ministries. So remind each other of the truths that you found, found in the scripture as you pray. Thank God for what he has given to you. Or don't always be, and God, please do this, and God, please do this, and God, please do this. Right? He's not your genie. He's not your errand boy. He's not your servant. Pray also in reflection of who he is. Pray also in worship of who he is. Pray that his will might be done on this earth as it is in heaven. There are so many reasons to pray. This evening, we looked at three reasons why Christians can and should be praying people. We pray because God hears our prayers. And we know that our prayers, though it may seem like they're not answered, do not go unheard. God hears all of our prayers and he delights to answer the prayers that are according to his will. God also desires for us to pray for our fellow believers. He has given us the church body so that we can care for one another. And God also keeps those of us who are born of him. And as a result, we give thanks to him in our prayers. And we also pray that he would continue to grow us in Christ's likeness. We have so many reasons to pray as God's people. So let us commit together to have more prayer in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for this evening, for allowing for us to see the power of prayer and the reason why we should be praying people. We know that, Lord, it is often easy for us to neglect prayer in our lives, and we pray for your forgiveness for that. We pray that you would help us to love prayer, to recognize our dependency upon you, that even though we might have the human strength to do some of the things that you uh, have uh, given us to do, or uh, even to endure some of the things that you allow for us to endure. We ultimately need you for everything, and so we pray that you would help us to rely upon you. Lord, help us to be praying people. Help us to love you with all we got so that you can receive all the glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.